Good morning. It is great to see you this morning. We're thankful for the opportunity to be together. Thankful for Brian leading us in singing. Thankful for Brian subtly suggesting that Travis turn the mic down before I get up here. Uh, thankful for uh, Travis and his leading us in prayer and Gary and his leading us in our thoughts as we partake of the Lord's Supper. All those who have participated in leading us, but especially all of you who are here to participate in it. We're thankful to those who are visiting with us. We have a few uh, who are not normally with us. I guess Marvin and Ann get the sticker for most visitors for the day. We're thankful to see their family uh, with them and thankful for uh, all of you who, who might be with us today. It's always a good day when we have those who are interested in placing membership with the congregation here. And we're thankful uh, for the Heron family as most of you have gotten to know them over the last little bit. But we're thankful for them being with us here uh, and their work that they've done so far and uh, the good folks that they are. Uh, as we think about new folks being with us, it might be uh, helpful to remind you at this time about our, our dinner or breakfast that we're doing, our Christmas breakfast, which will be on December the 10th, uh, and that'll be $10 per plate uh, for the uh, breakfast buffet that we'll have here. We have that kind of catered in, the food brought in from uh, Anthony and Teresa's kitchen or home cooking over in the Sequatchie Valley there, and some of you were a part of that last year. Uh, if you need help with that, that money, you can talk to the elders. They'd be willing to, to help with that. We want to make mention of it, but as I mentioned, we have some new folks uh, and just to say, we, we didn't, I guess, do it maybe in 2020, but we did have it again last year. But it's usually just a time for us to get together and enjoy some good food. We also usually have some uh, songs or skits that are just a little bit fun, uh, kind of in the Christmas spirit and a chance for us uh, to enjoy time together. Uh, we were thinking about this recently. Uh, those were the occasions before uh, the last couple of years where we could get together and have a meal uh, we didn't do that as often. Now that we're together most Sundays, we're usually eating together uh, more than we used to, but it's still a time for enjoyment, for fun and laughter. And if you can be a part of that, uh, if you have any questions, you can see Hannah or myself or she's been collecting the money for that uh, so that we can get that over to those folks and then have the food here that morning and just enjoy a good time together. I know it's around the holiday season and so folks sometimes have family get-togethers, uh, but we'll start around 8 or 9 that morning and have breakfast and then our our time of fun and, and be done with the day. So if you have other things you need to get to, uh, we'd love for you to be a part of that. And then you can go about maybe other family business that you have. If you look at your outlines for this morning, if you have your bulletin in front of you, you'll notice again that we're going to kind of connect the two lessons and talk about a theme this morning. There are some outlines in there again. And I wanted to make mention that I received a, a text message yesterday, several of us did, of a picture of this projector over here that was working. So we're getting closer. We're not all the way there, and we weren't going to try to just kind of half do it this morning, but we appreciate Travis and his work. I know he was here yesterday morning because that's when I got the picture. Uh, Hannah and I had somewhere to be over in Chattanooga last night. We drove by the building at about 5 o'clock, and his car was here. And we came back by the building at about 9 o'clock, and his car wasn't here, so I was thankful for that. But Travis has put a lot of time in here and others helping him working on our projectors, and we hope maybe by next Sunday, but certainly in the next couple of weeks, those will be up and running again for us so we can enjoy our singing and maybe an outline as a PowerPoint to go along with the lesson. You know, when you span across all different religious groups and you span across all types of thinking, there are many different things that are emphasized when it comes to salvation, right? When you ask someone on the street, someone maybe that you work with about salvation, what the Bible says a person must do to be saved, there, there are all kinds of different things that are often pointed out or are emphasized, maybe given a little more emphasis than something else. We think about John 3.16, of course. So many folks in the world can quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever 
believes, right? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So many people point to something like John 3, 16, which is absolutely true and absolutely inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they talk about belief. So they say all a person has to do is believe. He says he who believes can have everlasting life, and that's true. Many other folks emphasize confession, right? They talk about confession. They talk about this idea that you just need to either pray the sinner's prayer or you need to say something. Often in that, maybe sinner's prayer. They might vary based on specific groups, but there's the idea that Jesus is Lord or Jesus is the Son of God. And so some people talk about confession, and that's what they'll emphasize. They say, what do I need to do to be saved? They'll talk about belief. They'll talk about confession, and here's the thing about the lesson this morning. Even we ourselves sometimes are very quick to push someone towards baptism. And rightfully so in one sense because it's in baptism that we come in context with the blood of or come in contact contact, excuse me, with the blood of Christ. Right? We just looked at in our young adult class this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4 where Paul talks about the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. And so we emphasize the water because that is the place in which we can die to ourselves and to sin, be buried, and then rise again to walk in newness of life. But very often, that's what we want to talk to someone into, so to speak, if you'll allow me to say it that way. We'll emphasize so much baptism, baptism. But the question this morning is, what is actually the hardest part? Because you may know people, there are a lot of folks who it's real easy. It's real easy to, to come here, it's real easy to change clothes, it's real easy to get down into the water. That's not hard. So what is actually the hardest part when it comes to someone being a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, becoming a Christian? Well, we already have the answer as we look at this afternoon's lesson because we're going to talk about in our one word emphasis, the word repent. You see, I think we could make a, a good argument that the hardest part is repentance. It's repentance. Now, what is it? If you have your outline in front of you, what is it? Repentance, just the simplest, easy definition is that it is a change of mind that leads to a change in action or a change in life. A change of mind that leads to a change of action or a change of life. A change of behavior, we might also say. That's what repentance is. If you've been with us for any amount of time, you've heard me say that. Both on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon and even on Wednesday night. When we stand here and we emphasize the gospel plan of salvation, when we extend Jesus' invitation or heaven's invitation, it involves repentance. And repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. I heard one preacher who was discussing this, and he said that he had been talking to a counselor, a professional counselor who, who interviewed and, and, I guess, counseled lots of people, folks who were addicts, maybe they had an alcohol addiction or a drug addiction, and most of those addicts would say very upfront to the counselor that they were tired of the lies. They were tired of the web of trouble and deceit that they were caught up in. They couldn't seem to get loose of it, but they were tired of living that way. They were tired of it. But the counselor would usually tell them, as most of them said, I want out. He would say, you have to change your playground and you have to change your playmates. 
That's kind of a, a fundamental, almost kindergarten level way of saying an example. But yes, for many people, if we want to change our life, we've got to change the area maybe in which we're working or playing or whatever, living. And sometimes we need to change the people that we are around. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Let's see it in a very simple picture. If you have your Bible, look in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse number 28, Jesus is going to tell another parable. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28. This is a very simple picture of repentance that we see it here. From the mouth of Jesus. But what do you think, he begins. A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered the son and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Now, depending on the version you have in front of you, the King James, it may actually use that word, repent, that he repented. The New King James says he regretted it. The English Standard Version says he actually changed his mind. But notice what he does. He doesn't just change his mind. Hopefully in all versions, it says that he changed his mind, he regretted it, he repented, and he went. A change of mind, yes, that leads to a change of action, a change of life, a change of behavior. It's not just this particular instance, but how many times in life, but are we, boy, are we sorry for a situation. Boy, I wish I hadn't have done that, or I know I shouldn't do this, and, and I'm, I'm just sorry about it, but I'm not actually going to stop. I'm not actually going to change. You know, it's maybe extreme. A lot of times if folks are willing to go all the way to the point of baptism, being immersed in the water, they'll change their life, even if it's just for a short while. It's maybe an extreme case to think that someone who is doing something very sinful, whether it be an adulterous relationship or, or alcoholism or addiction of some sort or whatever, that they would be baptized and then go right back to what they're doing the next day. But some people do. And for many of us, that's exactly the way we treat repentance. We'll come to the front. We'll say we're sorry. We'll change our mind for a few minutes, hours, maybe a couple of days. But we don't actually change our habits, our life, our actions, our behaviors. So this is what it is. But let's continue down that road of what it is not. You should have two blanks there. The first one is confession. What it is not, it is not confession. It's not confession. In fact, do you know that in the Old Testament, two fellas we know pretty well. One, Pharaoh. The second, King Saul. First of all, Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 9 and verse number 27, Exodus 9, 27, Pharaoh says these words. Did you know he even said them? I have sinned. He made a good confession. He made a confession. You go over to 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel 15 verses 24 and also again in verse 30. 1 Samuel 15, 24 and 30 and King Saul says these words. Did you know he said them? I have sinned. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, both Pharaoh and King Saul are the two places that we hear it the most. Somebody says, I have sinned, and it's these two guys. But that's all they did. They said it. They made confession, but they didn't actually change their life. The example that we know most, and by the, by the way, this afternoon, we're going to come back and talk about some of the words associated with the Bible, but also talk about several examples. The example that we usually talk about, that maybe you know the most, is of course found in Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 5. Old Judas, 
Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 5, can I suggest for your thinking this morning that no one, no one in that moment is sadder than Judas. Jesus has been betrayed. Jesus is going to the cross. And no one is sadder in that moment than Judas. Judas regretted it. Judas repented. In fact, if you turned over there, depending on the version you have, you may actually see that phrase. The New King James says in verse number 3 that he was remorseful. But some of you may see that word that he repented. What he did was he confessed. He felt remorse. He goes before those group of chief priests and elders and he confesses. But he doesn't change his life. He doesn't go to Jesus, or at least as close as he can get, and say, I'm sorry, and I've done wrong, and I want to change. We know the account that he goes and he hangs himself. Judas made confession. King Saul, Pharaoh, many other people make confession, but that's not repentance. Number two, repentance is not emotion. It's not emotion. If you have your Bible, look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. Paul here gives us another wonderful idea of what repentance really is and that it's not just emotion. He says for even, in verse number 8, for even if I made you sorry. What's that? That's, that's emotion. We make our kids sorry sometimes that they've done something. Maybe we punish them so much that they're sorry that they did it, but are they actually going to change their action? Are they going to do it again? Sometimes that's left up to the future. He says, now I'm, I'm, made, I'm made sorry, for even I made you sorry with my letter. I do not regret it, though I did regret it for a time. For if I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Boy, we can see Paul writing to us, can't we? Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow, your emotion, which is not repentance, led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We might say lots of people are sorry. Lots of people have emotion. But that sorrow of the world, that only emotion, leads to death. It doesn't lead to true repentance. It's godly sorrow that might include emotion, but it also leads to change. See, there's nothing wrong with coming to the front, as we'll do in just a few moments. We'll sing. We'll ask you to stand. And we'll ask you to come to the front if you'd like to share your heart, if you'd like to make a change in your life. There's nothing wrong with crying. Many folks do. It's emotional. Emotion is not wrong, but emotion is also not repentance see unfortunately sometimes people come to this front row and maybe they've written a statement they've written a letter and they say i'm sorry that i did this or i'm sorry that i've not been faithful to the church or to services or whatever but they don't actually make a commitment to changing their actions they're sorry and maybe they cry tears but it takes action as well someone once said that repentance is not when you cry it's when you change Repentance is not when you cry, it's when you change. In fact, the prophet Joel said it long ago, Joel chapter 2 and verse 13. God says, turn to me with all your heart, so rend your heart and not your garments. 
What did people usually do in the Old Testament? They tore their clothes and they sat in sackcloth and ashes, didn't they? They, they made an outward show of it. They made something that showed that they had emotion. They rendered their garments. Joel says, by God, don't rend your garments. You can tear your clothes. You can cry. You can roll around on the ground. But I need you to rend your heart. I need you to change your life, not just cry about it. Repentance is not confession. Repentance is not emotion. But here's another thing that repentance is, and this is not in your outline, but it is also a biblical theme. It is also, we might even say, a biblical command. We've already noticed from the Old Testament, Joel, but go back to the rest of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 1 and verses 11 through 17. Isaiah 1 verses 11 through 17. Isaiah begins his account by talking about how unfaithful they were. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Verse 11, Isaiah 1. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord. He says, you're doing all this stuff physically, but what is the purpose? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. Wait a minute, God, haven't you been telling us to do these things? Aren't we commanded to offer this blood and these sacrifices? And he's saying, yes, but you're only going through the, the motion and you're not actually changing anything. Go down to verse 16. He continues to sort of hammer them home about these things. And in verse 16, he says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke, re rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. All of these things involve change. Repentance. In the Old Testament, it's a theme that people need to repent. You go forward to Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. This is the passage that I preached on my very first sermon here when I actually tried out, right? Seek ye the old paths. Stand in the old ways and see. Ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But what do the people say to God? We will not. We're not going to do it. We don't care. We're not going to change. But in the Old Testament, whether it be Joel, whether it be Isaiah, whether it be Jeremiah, there is this theme of repent. They're not told to be baptized. They're not living under the new law. Jesus has not come to the earth yet, but they're told to repent. We go to the New Testament and we see repentance. Luke 13 and verse 3 is the passage that we usually quote. It's the one that's usually on the slide as we talk about the gospel plan of salvation. But do you remember there that they're questioning Jesus about something that had happened? Pilate had taken the lives of some Galileans. And the question is about maybe sometimes that those who suffer the most are the ones who sin the most. But Jesus says, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? What does he say? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will perish. But he doesn't stop there. He's got another example on hand, on hand. He says that there were 18 people on which a tower fell and killed them. So he says, do you think that they were worse? Do you think that they were worse sinners than everyone else? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will perish. 
Are those who suffer most the most evil people? No. I know this room. I know some of you that have suffered through many things. And you're not the most evil people. That's not how it works. However, Jesus says the lesson is when tragedy comes, many will be unprepared unless they repent. When those trials come, like a tower falling or people getting killed, we are not prepared unless we repent. Repentance is a message of the Old Testament. Repentance is a message of the New Testament. In fact, look at Matthew chapter 4. And can I suggest for you of something that I'm even guilty of quite often? In Matthew chapter, in the book of Matthew, we often go to Matthew chapter 5. And what do we call that? We call it Jesus' first sermon, don't we? The Sermon on the Mount. But if you go back to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, we might get Jesus' first sermon. And most of you might like it because it's a lot shorter than the second one, right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. But Matthew 4 verse 17, he says what? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Jesus' first sermon. And what does it include? It includes repentance. You go to the end of Luke's account, Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 47, and what does Jesus say there? In what is Luke's account of the Great Commission, Jesus says that as they are to go forth, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. What is the message that is going to be preached? Repentance. Repentance. And of course, I know that you know as we go forward to the book of Acts, I know that you know that Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, as Peter preaches that first gospel sermon, he tells them to repent. Repent and let every one of you be baptized. But have you ever noticed before that as you go forward to Acts chapter 3 and verse number 19, when Peter preaches that second sermon, we might say, what does he say? He says, repent. You go forward to Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31. And Paul is preaching one of his sermons there. And what does he say? Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. They had to offer sacrifices. We offer our lives as a daily sacrifice. They had to offer sacrifices. We are baptized for the remission of sins. But a biblical theme has always been changing your mind, which leads to a change of life. Repentance. We also see it, as we've already noticed, in several places in the Bible in action. I want to give this to you, if you have your outline in front of you from the bulletin, the answers to the blanks there for in action is Luke 15. But I'm going to ask you not to turn there just yet. Luke 15. I don't want to confuse you as you're jotting down notes there. Luke 15. But first, let's go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, then we'll come back to Luke 15. Psalm 51 is a prayer of repentance. Everybody, I think it's pretty safe to say, almost everybody in the world knows the story of David, right? Not just David, not just David and Goliath, but David and Bathsheba. When we tell the story of David, quite often we tell the story of David and Bathsheba. When we tell the story of David, we quite often talk about the sin. When we tell the story of David, we quite often talk about the confrontation that comes after, right? Nathan confronts him and tells him this story, and he says, you are the man. He tells David, you're the one who's done wrong here, and we talk about the confrontation. We also talk about the crime that David sometimes goes through, the change of his life right there. 
But when we tell the story of David after he had gone into Bathsheba, we don't always connect with it, the 51st Psalm. We tell the sin, we tell the confrontation, but not the crying out in repentance. As you look at the 51st Psalm, it oozes. It just bleeds. It just cries with tears of, I am sorry, confession, I have done wrong, with tears, emotion, but also repentance. So much so that we put it in a song, our young people usually sing it, beginning in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. When we think about David and what he has done, this is a beautiful, beautiful psalm of repentance. We see it in action because we see what David did. We see the confrontation where he's reminded that he's the one who has sinned and he's wrong. And we also get the repentance, the change, the feeling, the emotion, all of it that goes into it. But certainly David makes a change. Now, very quickly, go back with me to Luke 15. Luke chapter 15. You know Luke 15 because more often than not, we misunderstand it just a little bit too. There's a lot of truth there, don't get me wrong, in the stories that we tell and the sermons that we preach. So often when we turn to Luke chapter 15, we talk about the lost. We talk about the lost sheep. We talk about the lost coin. We talk about the lost or prodigal son. Great parables, great accounts for us to think about our lives, to think about what Jesus wants us to know. But do you ever recall that in Luke chapter 15 and verse number 7, Jesus says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who does what? Repents. The lost sheep is important. But when he makes the connection to them and to us, he's talking about repentance. Go down to verse 17, or excuse me, go down to verse 10 first. Jesus says, likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who does what? Repents. The lost coin, it's important. Seeking that lost coin is important. But Jesus talks about repentance. The picture that we so often paint, though, from Luke 15 begins in verse 17. When the young man comes to himself and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Unless you forget our definition, he's had the self-conversation, right? He's changed his mind. But verse 20 reminds us, he arose. He arose and he went. He had the change of mind, but it leads to a change in action. You see, Luke 15 is about lost things. It's about enjoying the saving of those lost things, the finding of those lost things, but it's also about repentance. We see it in action when each one says, repent. Why is it that repentance is the hardest part? Can I suggest for you that for us, we often want Christianity without conversion that's what we want we want christianity without conversion 
We want forgiveness without forsaking. But Jesus says, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, a Christian, you've got to convert. You've got to change. You've got to repent. Jesus says, if you want to be forgiven by my blood, you've got to forsake the worldly ways. You've got to change. You can't just change your mind. You can't just cry a lot. You've got to actually go through with repentance and change. We said it isn't just emotion. There should be emotion, but it manifests itself in proper behavior. In fact, repentance is part, repentance is the hardest part, in part, because a part of repentance is invisible. Isn't it? Have you ever thought about that? A part of repentance is invisible. Because we can't see into each other's heart to know whether or not a person is truly committing to change or whether they're just trying to give you the answer you want to hear. Or whether they're just trying to enjoy the benefits of joining the church, quote unquote, without actually having to change their lives, without actually having to convert, without actually having to forsake the worldly ways that they've been in. On July 2nd, 1983, John William McGarvey, who most of you know as J.W. McGarvey, preached a sermon in Louisville, Kentucky that was simply titled Repentance. McGarvey would say in that sermon that if God were giving miraculous gifts, he would not ask for the gift of healing or the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues. Rather, he would ask for the power above everything else to cause men to repent. He said this in that sermon, The greatest obstacle to the salvation of men is the stubbornness of the human will. There's so much truth there. We usually talk about hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. I think repentance is truly the hardest part. Because it's real easy to say, I believe. It's real easy to say that in front of others as we talk about making the good confession before men. It's real easy even to climb into the water and to get wet, but it's really, 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 really hard to change our lives, to change our mind and then allow that to lead to a change in action, a change in our life. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sins. We'll be singing a song in just a moment to encourage you that you would consider doing that, changing your mind, changing your life, becoming a Christian by coming in contact with the blood of Christ in baptism, rising again out of that water, not to have the dirt washed off your skin, but to have the sin removed from your life, to walk in newness of life. The Lord will add you to his church, and you can begin to live faithfully serving him. A change of life. Maybe you're here, and you've done that in times past. You're a Christian, but you've wandered away. Maybe more often than not, you think about making a change. You want to repent. As we said earlier, maybe you even come to the front and you cry and you say you're sorry for something that you've done, but you don't actually change your life. We're thankful for this opportunity that presents itself, the song that's been selected, that through its words we might encourage you. If you need to become a Christian or maybe you need to truly repent in your life, confess your sin and pray to God for forgiveness, to come back to him as we usually say, we're thankful for that opportunity as well. But understand that it involves us doing something more than just lip service, but actually changing our mind, rending our heart. If we can assist you in any way, come forward as we stand together and as we sing.
Good afternoon. We're looking forward to studying the rest of the idea of repentance this afternoon in the few minutes that we have to spend together here. Uh, if you have an outline in front of you, you'll see that we're going to talk about some of the words that are involved, but then also I ask Faith to leave some open space so that uh, we're going to go over several biblical examples. I know we kind of did that a lot this morning, but we're really wanting to emphasize the idea of repentance, why it sometimes is the hardest part uh, for us to do or for a person to do when it comes to true committal, when it comes to truly following after Christ. Um, as we said this morning, and I was listening to several different lessons, reading several different things in kind of preparation. And one thing that just kind of hit home with me as we said this morning was part of repentance that makes it hard is it's done on the inside. A good part of it is done on the inside. That when someone comes to the front or comes up to me or one of our elders or whoever and talks and asks, asks questions about salvation and, and those kinds of things, you know, all we can go on, of course, is what they are saying and what they do, what they have done maybe and, and will do, uh, it's really on the inside, and we can't tell that. A person certainly could be putting on, just play acting that they really want to commit. But the thing about it is, truly, while part of repentance is invisible for a time, it does manifest itself in works. And we talk about how Jesus says you'll know a tree by its fruit. That's really what we're talking about, that a person can talk and talk and talk, and as we say, talk the talk. But they eventually have to walk the walk or we then know if they don't what they are or who they are or what their real feelings are. And so, yes, some of it's on the inside, but ultimately we can judge the fruit. We can be fruit judges. We can say, yes, this person says these things, but their actions are showing something different. So as we usually do, we've been doing this now for several years, taking uh, what was kind of meant to be a weekly study and get done in one year and spread it out. Uh, over the course of several uh, Sunday nights or afternoons, uh, we've worked our way through many different words, uh, probably up to 20 or 30 of them now around there. But this has been in this, on a section talking about uh, some of the parts of the plan of salvation. We've talked uh, about faith, and now we're talking about repentance. And so uh, we do want to do a bit of a word study. Some of you really appreciate that. Some people say, I could really do without that. But if you have your bulletin in front of you, you'll see there's a, a discussion or a mention for some some Old Testament or one Old Testament word. And of course, the best way I know to do it is just to spell it for you. But that Old Testament Hebrew word is spelled N-A-C-H-A-M. As best I can pronounce it, it would be something like Naham, but N-A-C-H-A-M. Now, if you are making notes or you filled in your bulletin, your outline, go outside but below or to the left of that. And there's one more word we just want to make mention of. It's actually spelled for us, sub, S-U-B. That's what the word looks like uh, when, it, when it's in our English. Uh, it's pronounced more like shuv, uh, but that's the word S-U-B there. But both of those carry with it this idea of to repent. That first word, naham, comes from a root word that kind of means to sigh or to breathe deeply. And it appears about a hundred times, actually, in the Old Testament. And a bunch of those... It is translated as comfort, and about 40 of those references are translated to repent or regret or change of mind. In fact, let's make mention of one, probably one of the more famous ones is Genesis chapter 6. Certainly, even if you're not making notes, and that's fine if you don't prefer that, you will want to have a Bible handy as we're going to look at a lot of biblical examples this afternoon. But one of the ones that would catch you early on, we sometimes put forth this idea, what if... 
someone had never heard of the Bible, they found one, they picked up and they started reading. Well, if they did that and they started in Genesis, you wouldn't make it far to Genesis chapter 6, and you wouldn't make it far until you read that phrase, and the Lord, the New King James says, was sorry. Now, as we said this morning, there's a difference between emotion, there's a difference between being apologetic, and here your uh, Bible may talk about more the idea of repented or regretted. But the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth is the idea there. That's how awful mankind had gotten in such a short amount of time. They were doing such awful and terrible things. In fact, verse 5 is the one that explains it for us, that the thoughts, every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And so very early on, we see that mankind has a way of going to evil things. And when he does that, God repents. Is God sorry? Does God need to change? That's not the meaning here, but it certainly is that he regrets, in a sense, that he had made mankind because of how awful they were being. If you're there in Genesis, turn over to chapter 8 and verse 9. That other word, again, shu is kind of the best way to pronounce it maybe. But in verse number 9, you see that the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned, that's the word there, to the ark. So this has nothing to do with a spiritual context, and we think about us turning from sin towards God, but you do just see this simply the idea of returning to someone. This does not, even like I said in Genesis chapter 6, imply that God changes. We know that God does not change, uh, but at times his, his decisions might have been influenced based on the actions of people, and we think about that with the sin there in Noah's day, even the prayer of Moses that happens later in Exodus chapter 32. Now, in the New Testament, there's really one main word. And if you're filling in your bulletin there, it starts with the word meta, M-E-T-A. So meta, M-E-T-A. The last four letters are N-O-E-O, N-O-E-O. And so the word here is what you'll find most often that explains um, repentance or repent. And it literally means, if you break it down, to perceive afterwards. To perceive afterwards. It means to think differently, to change your mind, to perceive afterwards, to repent. And in the New Testament, it always involves a change for the better. Uh, and when we look at it, again, we won't take time to look at all the different verses, but each time it talks about this idea of changing for the better, a person repenting or changing their mind. But as we said this morning, really the emphasis is not just on changing your mind, thinking differently, but changing your mind that then will lead to a change in action. That's what we want to emphasize for the next few moments. I gave you some room there because we're going to go to at least five different examples here uh, very quickly to talk about how this, the Bible paints this picture for us of repentance. The first one we looked at this morning, but I wanted to make mention again, is Matthew 21. Matthew 21 and verse 29. <clears throat> Matthew 21, 29. The reason is because it is just one of the very simple examples where Jesus gives this uh, parable of these two sons. The first son says, I'm, he tells the son to go. The first son says, I'm not going to go. But then he repents or regrets and he goes. He doesn't just sit home all afternoon and say, 
boy, I sure wish I had gone. I'm, I sure am sorry about that. He changes it. He does something about his situation in life. And the second, in verse number 30, we didn't go further this morning, but then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. And so we see that example then of sort of going back on your word. We might could say lying, but certainly saying one thing and doing another. He, he doesn't repent. He says that he will, but then he doesn't do it. And there's a whole other lesson, of course, in of itself with that. But it's somebody saying, I repent, I change my mind, and then I'm going to go. That's certainly this biblical concept of repentance. Now, there are some other occasions in which we see this borne out. Look in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. If you can't recall it off the top of your head, as you turn there, you'll know the story. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10 is the story of that wee little man, Zacchaeus, right? And Jesus meets Zacchaeus as Zacchaeus had climbed the sycamore tree to try to see Jesus as he's passing. Jesus looks up and tells him to come down for I'm going to your house. And he, when he comes down and they go to the house and there's that interaction there, Jesus is you know, going to have this time with him. Verse 7, when they saw it, that Jesus had come, they all complained or was going to go. He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. You know, I don't think we usually mention Zacchaeus when we mention repentance, but we see it in action. Zacchaeus doesn't just welcome him in he doesn't just try to keep his possibly very probably like sinful behavior as we think about tax collectors and the way uh, that they would extort or you know collect more than they should have he didn't just say oh I'm sorry but not change uh, he didn't just try to cover it up he goes back and he gives back the money he's going to make restitution for what he's done if he's going to repent he doesn't just say it he actually goes through with the action. All right, Acts chapter 19 is our next occasion. Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, there's a discussion of the miracles that Paul was doing. In fact, if you remember in verse number 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick. And so, as we've even talked about the Holy Spirit some on Wednesday nights here in our auditorium class, here we see this miraculous working in which Paul is able, people are able to take things that had touched him or he had touched and then take it to someone and they were healed by this miraculous power. And so, as they always had trouble, they have trouble with the people because the people who are making money off of others by trying to claim to do these things are kind of, you know, having problems with what Paul and some of his co-workers are doing. There's a mention here down in verse number 17 that this, the things that had been done, including uh, some of the evil spirits here, this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. We talked about confession this morning. They were confessing, which we can say I did wrong. Verse 19, though, also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 
50,000 pieces of silver. So, verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and it prevailed. These folks confessed, as we said, can be part of it and should be to confess sin. In fact, you hear me usually in the invitation talk about that a person who is already a child of God does not need to get baptized over and over again, right? That's not how the Bible explains forgiveness for a person who has been baptized and been added to the church. It talks about that person confessing and repenting. We have the opportunity to confess before one another when you can come to the front and make it known. We can pray with you and for you. But at the same time, you're confessing to God. You're repenting, though, as well, changing your mind and changing your action. God is willing to forgive, and you can begin to live new again, to do better again as you have wandered away or done these things. Notice, as we said this morning in our lesson, though, it should involve repentance. should involve repentance. When someone comes forward, and they're tearful, and they're sorry, and they say, oh, I've done this, confession, that's, that's great. We're on the right track. But hopefully they will change their behavior as well. These folks in Acts chapter 19 who had been doing these things, they confessed and they told their deeds. But some of them also, as we say, put some skin in the game and brought their things and burnt them. Have you ever known someone, I, I hate to use these examples a lot, but unfortunately many of us know folks of our own family who are sometimes addicts and have trouble with addiction, whether it be drugs or alcohol or something but those people who are really caught in the throes of that, you know, and they have, let's say, we'll just use, you know, alcoholism, but, but they, they've got alcohol and, and they come and they say, I'm sorry, they've messed up again, you know, made some big mistake. And they'll say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it anymore. But they never actually go through with getting rid of anything, right, that they've had. And so that temptation is still there. These folks in Acts 19, they burn their books, and in fact, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see at the end of verse 19 that there is a value that is given, right? There's a value. There is no value sometimes in our lip service. That's the problem with this. That's why it's hard, because a person can stand and they can cry and they can say, I'm sorry and I won't do it again, but they're just saying it. Getting rid of the stuff is something that a person might do to really try to repent and to change their behavior. If I get rid of the alcohol, then it's not going to be a temptation. And these folks here say, we're going to burn it. And it's a lot of money. You know, I'm not going to bring just one. I'm going to, I'm going to keep some others, you know, just for my mind or, or because I want to hold on to them. We'll bring it and we'll burn them. And it is a lot of money. They change their mind, but they also change their actions. All right, Acts chapter 26. Let's look there as well. Acts 26 and verse number 20. And really, of course, it begins all the way back at the beginning of Acts 26. Paul is going to speak to Agrippa, and Agrippa is going to give him a chance to sort of give a defense, if you will. And Paul is going to go through this long, lengthy sermon describing about his life, who he has been, what he has done, how he was raised. It begins in verse number 12, though, with that journey on the road to Damascus. If you have a Bible that has red letter writing in it, you notice that down beginning in verse 14, there's some red letters. He's recounting his interaction with Jesus there on that road when he has that vision and is struck blind. Beginning in verse 19, he says that magical word that we try to point out for ourselves in context, therefore. What's it there for? He says, because of the things Jesus just said to me, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but... 
declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should, here's our word, repent, turn to God, and what? And do. And do works benefiting repentance. Paul says, turn and do. And if you go back in your mind, and you could even flip back in your Bible to Acts chapter 9 there, as Paul has had that vision on the Damascus road, later in Acts chapter 9, not only at Damascus, but later in Jerusalem, he's got a problem on his hands. And what's his problem? You know, his, you remember what his problem was? His problem is that people were fruit judgers. And they looked at him and they said, I know you, you're the persecutor. I know you, you dragged my friends off to prison. And what does he have to say? Well, when it comes to a physical thing, he can put his hands on and say, no, 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 that's not me. He has nothing because he spent his whole life carrying Christians off, or at least his older life there, his life carrying Christians off to prison. And you wouldn't blame somebody to look at him and say, I'm not getting anywhere near that fellow because of what he's done. He's given the lip service. He's repentant. He's been baptized. But he's got some work to do to change his action. And they don't believe him. But Paul says, that's what I had to do. I had to turn and do. Some of you are familiar with the story that is told. Uh, and again, you know, I don't know. I've not been close enough to someone who's around. But the story that Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, the mass murderer, of course, was converted supposedly in prison and became a Christian. Uh, he didn't live very long after that, I don't believe. Uh, but that's the, the closest thing, you know, you might come to of somebody that if you knew their face and that they were a murderer and you saw them on the street, you would run the other way. It didn't matter if they're yelling, hey, I'm a Christian. Doesn't matter. I know them and what they've done. When we think about our actions and repentance, they are connected. A person can say it all day, but not only do they have to turn, but they have to do as well. All right, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 27. This is the one that we mentioned this morning. And there's actually several uh, passages that we might could turn to. But do you remember that we read this morning uh, from Paul's writings where he talks about the idea of godly sorrow? Do you remember that we read that passage and we made mention, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, about godly sorrow and our tears and our emotion? What's the difference between God's way of sadness and the world's way of sadness? What's the difference between God's way of sadness or sorrow and the world's way of sadness or sorrow? I think we can see this picture very clearly for us as we touched on this morning of two central characters of the gospel story that takes place on that night in Matthew chapter 27. On the night of the Last Supper, you may recall that Peter followed Jesus to the high priest's house where he proceeded to deny Jesus three times. Times. You've read those words, right? Most of us have been over them. They cut deeply even for us to hear Peter say those things. No, I do not know this man. Peter does that. But on realizing what he's done, Peter went out and cried like a baby. He cried like a baby. And that's the first step maybe toward restoration or repentance. That he's going to have this emotion. But then... After that, he has a, an occasion, a remarkable conversation with Jesus by the lakeshore. That's found in John chapter 21, by the way. But his sadness led him to repentance, and that was the cause ultimately for rejoicing. Peter says, I'm sorry, Lord. 
I know I did those things. I did that thing, but I repent. And we see Peter then in Acts chapter 2 standing before the crowd and proclaiming that first gospel sermon. As we said this morning, though, on the other hand, there was Judas. And that's in Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 5 that we had looked at this morning, who betrayed Jesus. He showed the high priest servants where to find him, essentially in the dark, right? In the, in the nighttime, he finds, he finds the, Jesus and tells the high priest where to find him. And he was plunged even further into the darker depths of the world's way of sadness. And it is Matthew's account, Matthew 27, where he flings the money down at the feet of those who had paid him to do this. And he goes off and he takes his own life. Two types of sadness, two end results. Suffice it to say for us, the same thing can be true for us. We would never want anyone to take their own life. But at the same time, we realize that that is sometimes the way that people choose to go. They, instead of repenting and changing their behavior, they're sorry. They have sorrow, but they don't change. And some people even go so far as to take their life. And it's sad. It's very, very sad. But we have a choice when it comes to repentance. Let me make mention of a few other things before we conclude with our thought, one final thought here. Why is it or how is it that we sometimes de-emphasize repentance? Why is it that we sometimes de-emphasize repentance? Can I suggest three things for you? Number one, because it's not popular, right? Quite often repentance is not popular. Most preachers today don't want to preach this kind of message. In fact, uh, one of the more famous uh, denominational preachers of the day, I think it was John Piper, is quoted as saying this about preaching today. Laughter seems to have replaced the goal of repentance for many preachers, right? With the advent of YouTube and streaming and all these things, so many preachers get caught up in looking for the laughs and looking for the attention and having the best stories or whatever it might be. They've changed the goal of the sermon from repentance to laughter. And I think there's a lot of truth in that sometimes. I think that as preachers, those who have preached here, and of course myself certainly, it can be a challenge sometimes to remember the goal is not to be the most popular person, the most sought after speaker, and even in a sense the goal is not to just crush everybody every single time, right, with how awful and terrible we are. But the goal is to remind us that more often than not, we are in need of repentance. That when we get comfortable in this world and we fall into sin, if we're not reminded that sometimes we need to change, then we get very happy in this world and we forget about longing for the, the world to come, for the eternity to come. And so it's true sometimes that we get caught up in this and it's a crowd pleaser. You know, people won't come if I preach about repentance, but they'll come if I've got these great stories and I've got these jokes and all of these things. That's sometimes the thought that is prevalent among preachers. We must preach the entire plan of salvation. That is certainly the goal. But we de-emphasize repentance sometimes when we think it's not popular. Number two, and I think this is important, sometimes we de-emphasize it because we minimalize or minimize the holiness of God. We minimize the holiness of God. Think about that for just a moment. God is not just some man upstairs. God is not just some grandpa or buddy that we're supposed to be friends with. 
God is a holy God. And if you want to be with God, then you have to be holy as well. Perfect? No. But holy. Sometimes we treat God as if he is just some kind of friend and some kind of buddy or the man upstairs. And we forget what they do in Isaiah chapter 6 and, and Revelation chapter 4 where they're chanting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We minimize the holiness of God and make him like just a grandpa and then we forget and that we need to be holy to be around him. And so when they chant that, that's the kind of feeling we need to have more often. He is holy and I want to be like that, so I need to repent and change my mind and my life. A third thing is once saved, always saved. Now I know that we don't necessarily believe this, you know, we don't teach this. But can I suggest that sometimes we might communicate that this is true? I heard a preacher one time say that what we do sometimes is we dip and we're done and we're destined for heaven. And that's what we sort of allow people to believe. Dip, done, and destined to heaven. We don't necessarily stand here and say that a person can never be lost. But sometimes we de-emphasize repentance when we, as we said this morning, only emphasize getting somebody in the water and we forget about truly changing to be a follower of Christ. We need to do our best to realize the holiness of God and how we need to be holy. And when we do that, hopefully repentance is always on the tip of our tongue. Because let's face it, we're not perfect. And we need help and we need to have a penitent heart always in our life. To conclude this morning, if you have your bulletin in front of you, you may see at the bottom there that what we say when we mean repentance, we often say it's a turn, right? It's a turn. And it is a turn. And the reason I wanted to end this way this afternoon is because I know I've done it, and I knew I'd probably be standing up here, right? I know I've done it, but I've stood right in this very spot in lessons, and I've looked this way, and I've said when we repent, we're going this way, and we stop, and we turn, and we go around that way, right? The preacher says it's a 180-degree turn. We're going this way, and we stop, and we go that way. It's a turn. But can I suggest, as we've said today, time and time again, it's a turn and a do, right? Because a person can be going this way towards sin, and they can turn around and look this way and stop and not do any moving to move closer to God. And can I tell you what happens? Because I know you already know. If you turn and you face this direction and you don't go forward, you eventually start going backwards a little bit at a time until maybe you're not fully facing that way like you were, but you're certainly not moving closer towards God because you're not doing anything. You've said you're sorry, you've cried the tears, but you're not actually changing your life. It is a turn, but it is a turn and a do. I know that this lesson and both of these lessons combined are some ways not the most encouraging thing. It's a reminder that we're quite often missing the mark, falling short of God's will for our lives, and we need to change. But I cannot emphasize enough that sometimes it is the hardest part, and we not only need to just give lip service by saying, I'm sorry, or even crying tears of sorrow, but we need to change our mind and change our life. It's very difficult because quite often it requires things that people will see. Maybe that's coming to the front here in just a moment as we're about to sing this song. Maybe it's just changing your life altogether. And maybe eventually somebody will say, hey, where, where have you been? 
Why have you not been hanging around us? Why have you not been doing the things you used to do? And you might have an opportunity to say, well, it's because I know that that wasn't the way I should be living, and I'm trying to change my actions, my behavior, my life, so that I can have a home in heaven for all eternity. This afternoon, if you are here and you're not a child of God, you can repent of your sin, turn away from those, yes, but also move towards God and do things that will help you, that will make you better, uh, that will follow, help you to follow after Christ. If you're here this afternoon, you're not a child of God, and you'd like to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, we would love to assist you in that or study with you as soon as possible. Maybe you've done that, but as we pointed out in these lessons, you have wandered away, you've allowed sin to enter your life, and you're in need again of repenting, changing your mind, changing your actions, and the beautiful part of being together here is that we have an opportunity to encourage you with our encouragement, with our prayers, with our love. If you would allow us to help you with that, we can do so now as we stand together and as we sing.